the Neon Confidential Podcast. Is this thing on? <laughs> Welcome back to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Today's guest is banned from entering the UK and his hands are registered weapons. Now that I have your attention, he's also a New York Times bestselling author for his book, Surviving the Unthinkable, and he is a total pioneer in providing the most effective self-defense and self-protection training in the world. He's a trusted advisor in his field, having trained celebrities like Tony Robbins, and his latest book, When Violence is the Answer, is a book that would benefit literally everyone on the planet to listen to, but especially women. Today, over 2 million women a year are attacked in the U.S. alone, and Tim's books hone in on his coveted self-defense strategies and his very particular ways of training. He uses human anatomy and breaks it down into ways that you can apply in multiple attack scenarios. But also in this episode, we get into his background and how a critical injury led him on a path from joining the Navy SEALs to his now successful career and totally disrupting the self-defense space. He teaches to visualize your as the aggressor instead of the victim and uses base knowledge of human anatomy to understand your attacker's weak points. We talk about his life path, how his seminars have actually saved people's lives after they have taken his course, and how persistence and consistency are the keys to getting what you want out of life. With that, let's welcome Tim Larkin to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Tim Larkin is a best-selling author of How to Survive the Most Critical Five Seconds of Your Life, and he's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Surviving the Unthinkable. He has trained more than 10,000 people in more than 50 countries in how to deal with imminent violence, including elite combat units, celebrities, and high-status executives, law enforcement agencies, and high-net-worth families. In 2011, Black Belt Magazine named Larkin their Self-Defense Instructor of the Year. He's also the man behind the training of the Navy SEALs, special ops, and everyday civilians like you and me. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Larkin. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, so I did just read your book, um, and it's your it's your latest book, right? Uh, how to Survive, or uh, When Violence is the Answer. Yeah, When Violence is the Answer, which is crazy, because when I was I read it, I actually listened to it, which is great, because it's yeah. you talking, right. and you and I have known each other for a long time, so I told you, I was like, I don't know what I was doing walking Xena the other day while you were just talking to me in my ear about self-defense. <laughs> but in the book, you also talk about when it's called when violence is the answer, but you also talk about when it's not the answer. So can we start off by talking about why you have to frame it that way? Like some people hear the word violence and they're automatically think they're anti-violence. They don't want anything to do with it. So, yeah, and that's that's why I, I I wanted to be controversial. I had to fight for that title. Um, violence has a very specific meaning. You know, a lot of people try to use the word fight, and fight's really ambiguous. You know, you can have a fight with your boyfriend, you can have a fight with your boss, you can have your fight with a coworker, um, you know, your friend, and it all means different things. When you say violence, we understand what that means. You that's know, right. that's a physical thing. So. There's that, and then the tagline I'm known for from all my training over the years is uh, the full title, what the full saying for that is, um, violence is rarely the answer. And everybody likes that part of it, you know? That's right. Because they all think, yeah, okay, it's really the answer. Uh, But the second part of the title is, but when it is, it's it's the the only only answer. answer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and, and that's the uncomfortable part for everybody. And that's the part that I found most interesting. You know, that's, that's where... 
that's where people need the most information. You know, when that rare black swan event, when the only tool that's going to work for you is violence. And I found that to be the most interesting, you know, in my whole career, that's really what I've, I've focused on military and law enforcement. I focused on the top end of either the uh, force continuum for the law enforcement guys or rules of engagement, because that's when the operator or the officer has every, um, is free to do anything to protect themselves. And yet normally when they get to that level of training, they say, do whatever it takes, dot, dot, dot. You know, they don't, they don't give you when you need the most specific information. Um, that is where most people just kind of throw their hands up and go, well, you know, uh, poke them in the eye, do something, you know? And, and that's why I think the book is so interesting because you really break that down about, um, I mean, what really stuck out to me was when you go through the scenario and I want people to read the book and, or listen to the book, obviously, but when you go through the different scenarios and you're like, out of this many people that you told these scenarios to, you always see yourself as the victim, you know, and yeah. to, it, to flip the script and kind of see yourself as the aggressor. Um, when you're talking about violence, but we're, we'll get more into to that. But I want to, and again, like you talk about this in the book and I want people to go out and read it. I don't think there's, as I, and I listened to the entire thing, I don't think there's a reason or one person this book wouldn't benefit or make sense to. I was literally walking Xena, reading it, and there was like a creepy guy while you're in my ear talking about what to do if somebody attacks you. Right. And I'm thinking like, as a woman specifically too, there's just, everyone needs to listen to this book. So how did you get into what you do for a living? And, and all the way back to like the, the incident that happened to you when you were training and just tell, tell the people. Well, briefly, I mean, I was a, I was a Navy brat. So my dad was a Naval officer and we lived all over. Um, martial arts was something my grandfather started me when I was early on, you know, boxing. And, and um, then as I traveled around the bases, all the young Marines that were at the base, they usually were our instructors. They either instruct us in some sort of, you know, judo, martial arts, boxing, um, they were like surrogate dads to us because a lot of our dads were gone. You know, they were they were deployed. Mm -hmm. So I grew up very comfortable in that world. And also, I was a military kid where I actually grew up on bases. It, it's it's kind of rare now. There's not a lot of that going on. But I literally, that was the only world I knew were military bases. And so in that context, um, combat sports, martial arts was a big you know thing for a kid like that. Um, so I was very comfortable with it. Uh, when I, when my dad had one of his last commands, it was in San Diego, California. We lived on Coronado. His ship was across the way in um, uh, San Diego, but the housing was in Coronado. Mm -hmm. And my backyard literally had a chain link fence. There was a little highway called the Silver Strand Highway. On the other end, my brother and I, the first thing we noticed when we got there, we go, oh my God, look at that obstacle course. There's this amazing obstacle course over there. Obviously, that's for us, you know? We didn't. <laughs> We didn't really care that it had triple wire, you know, <laughs> barbed bar so wire. That's where the Navy SEALs trained. That's trend. where the SEALs trained. Yeah. Oh my God. And so that's when I got introduced to special operations community and in particular the Navy SEALs. And um, as a young kid, I mean, I was 12 years old and we're hanging out watching, you know, nobody back then, nobody really knew who the SEALs were, mm -hmm. which is crazy today because everybody, you know, knows who the SEALs are. Totally. And so I got, I got indoctrinated into that and I decided, oh, this is what I want to do. So I made a deal with my dad that I would go to college. Um, and I think he thought college would like get it out of me, you know, because nobody back then, uh, if you were a naval officer and you went to the SEAL teams, it was almost like a, a death knell for your career. There really wasn't advancement back then. Um, and they were really kind of like the redheaded stepchildren of the Navy. 
because the seals were yeah because they didn't really have a space back then you know it's hard for us today because it's so prominent in everything but back then um you were really seen as an outlier you're seen as almost kind of like a weirdo but you wanted to get into it wow. um, um they, they had a good reputation within like the amphibious community but back then i was a scholarship student i went to usc and i was a um i went there in an rotc scholarship and they tried everything they could to talk me out of it wow and so i had i had tw- there were 2500 guys that applied for two slots to get into the seal teams what we only had two slots for officers and um 2500 guys yeah are going for two top spots and those are 2500 guys that qualified like you had to qualify physically academically all those things so there's 2500 of us and i knew that i had to do something to distinguish myself i thought you were gonna say i knew i was gonna get it (laughs) well no i i i I will say that i had i had that determination like 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 i I kept focusing that I'm, i'm gonna get it i'm gonna get it but what I told myself was, I said, I have to do, I have to leave everything on the table. And so I'm, I'm going to school at USC, so I'm in LA, mm-hmm. but I have contacts in DC. You know, I got friends all over. And one of my buddies was going to American University. And so I had been calling the detailer, like, because I knew all the seals, you know, from my, from being a kid, mm-hmm. I kind of knew all the ins and outs. And I because knew because of where you lived, you knew all the seals yeah. because you were like hanging on their obstacle course. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they this all made friends so with us. Funny. Oh my God. It, it was one of the funny it's stories. It's like your destiny. Well, anyway. well, well, one of the funny stories on that was <laughs> I told my dad the story where it's great. Dad, oh my God, I had so much fun. I go, I went down with some of the team guys. I said, we went down to, I think it was, uh, uh, marker you know marker 18 it was one of the the beaches they had way down the way mm-hmm. oh and they they had some extra explosives and we were exploding this we were doing <laughs> this well apparently <laughs> they were just trying to show off to us and it wasn't supposed to happen and so all of a sudden i forgot everybody's name my dad's asking i'm going yeah dad i don't really know and i guess protecting these guys you because, ain't no snitch no hell no <laughs> and uh but they were really cool guys and, and they let me know but they told me everything about training and how to get in and everything and then the officers i went uh, um, in in uh, college, mm-hmm. I did a year at uh, University of London, London School of Economics, and I used to work out at the embassy. And in the embassy, there was a SEAL officer who was assigned there and everything, and a bunch of FBI guys. And these guys gave me all the inside, you know, gouging cool, how to yeah. do it. Because they all spec ops guys and stuff. And this commander really helped me out. You know, he kind of told me, you know, how to do what to do. So he said, listen, I called him up and go, you know, hey, Commander Holt, what can I do? And he goes, Tim, obviously, he goes, he goes, you want to leave everything on the table? He goes, you need to talk to Margaret. Margaret was, she's been there 25 years. She was the person who worked for the guy called the detailer. Detailer is the guy that makes a decision whether you go or not. Mm-hmm. And he said, Margaret's been there forever. You got to start, you got to start getting a relationship with Margaret. Oh, I, I was sending her flowers, talking to her all the time. I found out, oh, I worked her. And so I call her up and, hey, Margaret, how you doing? I said, hey, I just happened to be coming to D.C. for my friend's event. There was no event, you know. And I said, I was just wondering, can I, you think maybe I can come by? And the guy's name is Golay. I go, Commander Golay, you think maybe I could have a meeting with him? And she goes, she goes, Tim, she goes, you may come by. I am not going to promise you that you're going to see anybody. Oh, that's okay, Margaret. That's all right. So I come by and I got my little midshipman uniform in. And I come there on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Now I'm staying, she knows I'm staying through the weekend. I come there Wednesday, Wednesday, 8 a.m. I am there, boom. And she goes, Tim, I can't promise anything. You can go sit in the couch. I sit in the couch. I sit in the couch all day till 5.30. What? Till 5.30 and, and he leaves. 
He doesn't even acknowledge me. He doesn't even look at you me. You like see him walking yep. out the door. And nobody, and some of the other younger officers that were there, they, they talked to me a little bit. One guy would take me to lunch and, but they wouldn't tell me anything. They wouldn't talk to me. I'm sitting there. So next day, Thursday, 8 a.m. I'm there again. Boom. Right there. Sitting on the couch. Margaret, you know, talking with her and everything, but same thing. Ignored. Friday, 8 a.m. I'm there the whole day. Boom. 4.45, he, he, he comes outside his office. He goes, Shipman, are you still here? I said, yes, sir. He goes, <sighs> he goes, will you get out of my office if I talk to you for five minutes? I said, yes, sir. You'll never see me again. He goes, okay. <laughs> so I get in there and I figured this is it. So I, he goes, what are you here for? And I said, sir, listen, I know you have a really hard decision. I mean, I'm just blurting it out, you know? I'm like, sir, I know you have a really hard decision. I said, I just want you to know that, you know, no matter what, I said, if you pick me, I said, I'm not going to quit. I'm just not going to quit. I'm going to, I'm going to see it through. And he goes, that's what you came here for. I said, yeah. He goes, I have 2,500 people. And you think that you tell me you're not going to quit is going to make a difference. I said, well, I just wanted you to know, sir. You know, I'm sitting there going, oh, I screwed up. I screwed no. up. So, <laughs> so I leave and I'm totally dejected and I'm walking down the Navy building. It's this long, just gloomy freaking Pentagon. I said bye to Margaret. She goes, Oh, Tim, I, I hope you have a good graduation. You know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit, you know? Movie. Yeah. And so I'm walking down the hall. I'm walking down the hall and this JG, a young officer, just comes running down. He goes, Larkin, Larkin. Boom. And I'm walking away. He goes, He goes, We can't let you leave like this. He goes, Hey, we just want you to know you had it Wednesday. We just wanted to see how long you were going to hang Stop out. Stop it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you didn't quit. So you no. clearly had to show that regardless. Yeah. You know? and that's, that's what that was the whole thing. So, <laughs> so the one thing I always tell people is like, listen, leave everything on the table. You know, if you really want something, just, you know, I knew after that, that was all I could do. Yeah. And uh, it worked out for me. I got the slot, you know, mm -hmm. and I got in. So um, that, that's kind of how I got into that world. I really, all I ever wanted to do is do that. Mm -hmm. I flew through training. Everything was great. Um, I got a dive like two weeks. Um, back then you did, uh, what everybody sees like hell week and all that. Mm -hmm. That's your first phase of training. Second phase of training, which is now third phase of training is your weapons and explosives. Mm -hmm. Your last phase was dive back then. And so I had, I flew through everything, all the hard evolutions, you know, hell week, the long swims, the, um, dive competition, all the, all the things that everybody talks about. I had this really just stupid little dive that I had to do and it was on a Tuesday, but I was congested, you know, I was really congested, but I was so arrogant. I was leading, I was scheduled to be the anchor man of the class, which is the number one guy. I had my own pick. I'd already picked where I was going back then. It was still team four. They were doing all the counter narcotics work. And, um, you know, if you saw narcos that was, they were working in with DEA down. I was all excited. I was going to go there. So the reason I did the dive that day was because if I didn't, I had to come back on Saturday and do it. And I had things to do. I mean, you know, we <laughs> finally, we finally had weekends off. I could you go out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was like during, um, it's right after Top Gun came out, you know? Oh my God. And so we were at the, as the officer, you went to Miramar bar every chance you had because, you know, the women just lined up around the was corner. Was there really the time. piano in there? Yeah. There's everything in there. It's yeah. like they, I wonder, I haven't ever been. But yeah. It was, it's, it's closed now. It's not there oh, anymore. Damn. Yeah. But back then it was still there. Then, there was actually a piano. Oh, there was everything guys would do. Like it, it was, it was one of the most fun uh it, it's it's really that culture is kind of gone of of the uh officers clubs that that used to happen the, the other one in virginia was really good too in oceana another uh air air base so you go there. in and your white crew neck and your aviators and leather jackets. it was it was like it, you just it was so easy it was yeah. just incredible 
Um, and, and it was fun. It was, it was really, it was really fun. What do you mean? It was easy. It, oh, women just loved the uniform. It was I great. I knew what you meant. I just wanted you to break yeah. that down. Yeah. Oh no, it was, it was, it was ridiculous. Um, so I, there's no way I was giving up Saturday, you yeah. know? And, uh, so I forced the dive and, uh, I tried to tell people there's waves above the water and yeah. there are waves below the water. Meaning, yeah. meaning they're coming in. So I'm down there and we're doing, it was just a classic seal, you know, frogman mission where we were practicing putting explosives onto uh, big concrete. They're called Jap scullies, but they're big concrete and steel obstacles. Mm -hmm. And it's the classic mission. You blow a lane. So the amphibious things can come in the amphibious boats. can come. In. So I'm down there and I'm cranking on, um, I'm cranking on the rope to tie the, the explosives to it. And as I'm pulling, I'm kind of like bare down a little bit. This is a breath hold dive. And um, uh, you know, I'm on my you know, rebreather and everything. And as I'm cranking down, I hit a wave hits. And my congested ear, I could feel it. It blew. It was like a, a spike of cold water just shot in the middle of my head. What? And then warm fluid came out. And I, I went into vertigo right away. So that uh, your inner ear, once it empties out like that, you know, the semicircle canals, you go into vertigo. I had no idea which way it was up. So it was fluid from your ear. Yeah. So it burst, everybody thinks bursting the eardrum. It's not the eardrum. The eardrum is just this little membrane. It's the fact that it went all the way up into my inner ear. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it got the semicircular canals. And that's where your, your ability to... Uh, um like balance balance yeah. and everything and it's a greater than 50 percent loss on one ear so it's a greater than 50 percent loss of your balance oh my god so i have no idea which way is up i'm sitting there and i grabbed the tow line the anchor line of the little inflatable boat that's up above where the instructors are i start pulling myself up i feel like i'm pulling myself 45 degrees down this way that's so wild i get up there they said when i hit the surface that my head was flapping uncontrollably blood coming out of my ears they pull me on and I knew as soon as the corpsman, we had these amazing corpsmen there, and uh, he looked at my ear, he immediately looked at it, and I could tell from his response, oh, I was God. done. Oh. I couldn't pressurize diet. You know, he goes, I, I really, I, <laughs> I destroyed my ear on that side. As far as that, I can hear fine. I have like a 10% loss, but there's no way I was going to be able to pressurize diet. And so Damn. my whole life got turned upside down. You know, I went from the number one to like, the, you know, back then, it's like it's like you're a pariah like anything is seen as weakness and so all your friends they were still my friends but everybody like they didn't want to touch you like they didn't want any bad luck no way and so it was like this crazy situation and as a young guy i went it's the only thing i knew you know i had no idea what i was gonna do in my life you know and but they kept me in and they put me into uh the special operations intelligence community i ended up working for the admiral it was at a time the berlin wall had just come down and uh whole special operations community came together and so i was with this junior guy on this crazy command with all the legends of the seal teams and they were revamping the way the seal teams were going to get trained because the soviet threat wasn't there anymore mm -hmm. so here i am i'm i'm in a position that really requires somebody five uh, three ranks ahead of me mm -hmm. you know and so i'm being sent as the admiral's representative all over the place I had modified grooming standards meaning we could have long hair um it was amazing i feel like people were probably jealous of that part right? yeah well that was where actually all my friends that uh, went in and became uh seals they were always calling me for info and stuff because i i always knew what kind of what was going on and i could share what i could share mm -hmm. um but it was it, it was something that i thought my world was upside down and done it actually turns out that it was the best thing that ever happened because one of the things those guys were looking at was hand-to-hand -hand combat 
They knew that the world was changing. They knew that that our guys were going to go from going against the Soviets, where it was kind of more long-range strategic stuff, to we we're gonna, they predicted what was going on today. You know, mm-hmm. with, like with Afghanistan and everything like that. They knew first it was going to be Serbia, Croatia, and they 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 knew that was coming. And they knew there were people were going house to house. So we had to revamp the way we trained hand to hand combat. Um, I had a couple of black belts, obviously, you know, from my training, you know, as a, as a kid, mm-hmm. very adept at that. And they just, they brought me in because I was younger and they kind of liked me. And uh, I think I was a good, like, meat puppet for them to knock around. So, so these guys were all like the, the older guys. And we're bringing in martial artists from all over the world. Mm-hmm. So then I end up finding a DEA buddy calls me up and he goes, Hey, he, and back then, hand to hand combat, this is pre UFC, it was looked at as like, what are you doing? Why are you punching and it's kicking? It's so crazy because you now this is like twice you've done this. So first yeah. you wanted to get into the SEALs when it wasn't like, and by the way, do you think that what put the Navy SEALs on the map kind of was, was SEAL Team 6? Yeah, I think it was SEAL Team 6, but it was uh, prior to that, it, where it really started getting known in the military and the community, Charlie Sheen came out with a movie. It was, uh, there was a guy within the community that wrote a book. Um, it was called Rogue Warrior, and he was the founding uh, commander of SEAL Team 6, Mar- Richard Marcinko. He just passed away. Mm. Uh, met, him, met him multiple times. Um, this guy was a maverick, uh, definitely pissed off a lot of people, um, but was amazing. He created SEAL Team 6 in 18 months, wow. which is crazy. I mean, to the point to where they were competing and, and, and doing better than Delta on a lot of things in wow. 18 months. You know, he was that kind of individual. Um, so you so first you get into this navy seals which is like not that popular and then now you're doing hand-to-hand combat which ufc doesn't even exist right now no and it's totally derided they go why are you doing this punchy kicky stuff so my my da buddy calls (laughs) me up so i work a lot with the dea during this time and my da buddy he knows what we're doing and he calls him up in you know a lot of you know a lot of choice words between us and he he goes hey you still you guys still doing that punchy kicky stuff And I go, yeah, you know, and I called him, you know, I called him another name back and I said, yeah, we are. And he goes, listen, there's this guy. He goes, now I'm living in Pacific Beach in San Diego. Okay. Mm-hmm. He goes, this is guy. He's got a little studio on Gresham. He goes, we just worked with him. He goes, he's a real asshole. He goes, but I think, you know, you get along with, with assholes. He goes <laughs> like that. And I take that as a compliment because what he meant was I get along great with with guys you met some of the guys that we know you yeah. know over there and some of them are difficult personalities you know i'm thinking well, like and it's there's a fine line too like a lot of people that are like assholes like that i have a respect and i'm sure you do too yeah. because they're probably very efficient at what they do and they don't have a lot of time for bullshit no, they don't or ass kissing yeah and like i think you and i are both the same way like i do not like an ass kisser no one likes nope. an ass kisser so i'm sure i, I know exactly what he means when yeah. he says that you get it, along with assholes and they like me because i don't try to be them and I can get great knowledge from them. And oftentimes I can get them into places where their personality would preclude them, you know, for that. Cause I, I can, I can make people, I can make people see the value in what they're doing. And, um, so anyways, I go in and, uh, I go check this place out and it's like a little dingy. St- it's literally three blocks away from where I live in, in PB. Mm-hmm. We're flying guys in from all over the world, all some of the top names in martial arts and stuff like this. And I'm like, I wonder if like he was jerking my chain, you know, mm-hmm. just say. So I go in, this place is like 900 square feet, a little bit bigger than this place. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and it's got carpet, just like thin carpet on it. And I'm like, and it's closed, you know, when I'm there. And I just happen to see a little trifold uh, folder that is taped up on it. And it gives this guy's background who's in there. 
the only thing that got me to go back was he was from a unit in Vietnam. He's in the 173rd Charlie Company. I knew that unit was specifically kept out in the jungle for a long time. I knew that he probably was a tunnel rat the way I did a guy that went down the tunnel and, and had to go down with a K bar, you know, a K bar and a 45 basically and, and just wow. brutal combat. So I said, okay, I'm going to come back and check this guy out. So I do that. And the first thing I watched was the closest thing I ever saw to what I knew was real violence. You know, there was my martial arts training. And then there was like what my uncles used to show me in Boston. They were Boston, you know, a couple were Boston cops. And some of them were just good street fighters. You know, my grandfather, uh, his family ran liquor with Joe Kennedy back in the day. So he comes from kind of a semi-gangster background. Mm-hmm. My grandfather cleaned up the family, supposedly. Um, which you, which I want to talk about that too, because you talk about that a lot in your book about how, like the, I remember you saying that the books that some of the people who were imprisoned had to read were yeah. on anatomy yeah specifically which is anatomy yeah they understand that and and human nature right very much into uh, psychology and human nature of of, of human beings so a lot of like gangsters these like street smarts are actually like a lot of them are book smarts because they're studying they're studying you know human anatomy where to strike people and that kind of thing yeah and the reason people like that do that is um because they can't afford to get it wrong for them violence is currency so when i go to federal prisons and i get to interview through my corrections people i've talked to leaders of uh aryan brotherhood uh black gorilla family um mexican mafia and then subsidiaries of them and the people that actually have to do the violence against another person it is it's hard for the general public to understand it but if you think of it in business terms their um market share their um their ability to control and do business is all based on the credible threat of violence so they can't have opinions about it it has to it has to work for them and so the reason they looked at anatomy of the human body which is the way i I train train people is because there's specific areas of the human body that time and time again show up in in the literature and the literature that i use is sports medicine literature Mm -hmm. uh, sports injuries and the reason we look at sports injuries is because every injury is a human colliding with a human or a human colliding with a uh, with the ground and that's forces you and I can replicate. So that's, you know, that's where they are. And the other thing is they're incredibly smart. Um, I don't glorify them. I don't mean like they're, it's, it's, I don't, it's, it's a fine line. They have a lot of useful information mm-hmm. that again, like, as I, we just said, I can get really good information from, you know, unpleasant people basically. Right. And then I can bring it to people that need it well that's you know? what you were you're like well the reason why they're good at it is because they can't afford to get it wrong but right like no one can really afford to get it wrong if you're no. in a situation where violence is the answer yeah. but anyway i derailed that the story but. no 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 that, that's, that's fine and so essentially all it was was i found this guy and I, I you know here i am the most junior guy in the command most junior guy in this program mm-hmm. and i didn't say anything you know i mean i love the training but it looked like i said you know it was unlike anything i'd seen like i i'll just give a give an idea i'm watching these kids and they were kids they're like college kids they're a little bit younger than me and i'm sitting there and the first thing i see is a kid go up and he strikes the guy the side of the neck comb grabs his hair knees him to the solar plexus bends him over and out of nowhere comes a rubber knife and he steps through and starts using the knife on the individual and dropping him so they're tra- they're training people in an office that's like this. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, really so small. And so I'm I'm sitting like like over there, uh-huh. and it's a little bit bigger than this, but you know, pretty pretty small. And I'm seeing this stuff, and I'm going, oh, this is this is what we're looking for. 
we're looking for people that it, it, they can synergistically use their brain and body and then when they put a tool in their hand like a knife they don't have to retrain themselves the training all works mm -hmm. because that's what we needed that the, the, what the seals were looking at the, at the time was the parameters were this um you had to you had to account that the person using the information was going to be at least 60 days in country they were going to be mildly dehydrated to a little bit dehydrated you know in there they were going to you know any conditioning they came with was gone their sleep is all over the place in there so the only thing they can rely on is their body weight that they carry in any kit that they have with them so he took athleticism out of it and that's what this guy taught you know this guy taught from a combat mindset that way he was not educated uh, he, he was not an educated guy as far as uh, anatomy and physiology from a formal sense but he completely understood how to use it in application. So what did he look like? Cause I, I know that that's usually what people think. They think that like, if you're going up against like a bully or somebody like woman versus man, that the guy is going to win because he's bigger, yeah. you know, bigger than you. So like, what did that guy look like? I wonder. It's the best part. So I'm sitting there, I'm sitting in there, I'm waiting for this guy. Cause there was no picture of him on that thing I saw. And I'm waiting, I'm seeing these kids training and, and there's like a senior student kind of leading it, but I know it's not the, the guy, you know? And all of a sudden from the back, I see this guy come out, he's got an Aloha shirt on, he's about 145 pounds, kind of looks like an old surfer. You know, he's got like longer hair, he's got the Fu Manchu, um, you know, uh, look like a, look like a, just a blonde surfer, you know, type of guy. And he's got flip flops on, he's got the old flow hose on, he's got, you know, like just Levi 501s on. <laughs> and he's like walking around, I go, oh, the janitor's here, you know? And I'm, I, I literally thought that. He starts walking around, he starts whispering in a kid's ear, you know, da-da-da, this, this, and the kid changes, does something else. And he makes little adjustments on people right away. And I'm going, oh, Christ, this is the guy, you know? <laughs> and so I don't say anything, because I'm, I'm sitting there looking like, I'm trying to, you know, just make sure I'm a, uh, look like a civilian. And, uh, he sits down next to me and he goes, oh, how you doing? And he's just real low key and everything. But I could tell, he just you see the eyes and you just go, oh. And he was one of these guys. And I always say, and I mean this, I don't mean this to put him down, but he was basically a functioning sociopath. Yeah. And he was very good at what he did. He just didn't have an outlet for it. You know, he was training stuff and he was kind of calling it martial arts. But this was way beyond martial arts. Mm -hmm. And um, And it was just one of those meetings that, Within a couple of months, we would train as a command, the guys that I was with, we would physically train in addition to any training like a martial arts guy would give us, we would train with each other two to three times a week. Wow. And they started to notice that I was moving differently and I was doing things differently. Who started to notice? My 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 uh, guys at the command. And so you and this 140 pound, five pound guy are like what, sparring with each other? No, like he's training me. I'm jumping in his classes. Okay. He doesn't know anything about Were me Were you yet. always like this big? I don't I, yeah, know I wasn't, what the word, you're like, you're, you're very muscly. Yeah, yeah, I was always, um, as a kid, I was always like this, I was, uh, I guess, the term is mesomorph. It was always easy for me to put on muscle yep. and athletic, and I always do combat sports. Mm -hmm. um, and but this guy, you know, he he looked athletic. He always had an athletic look to him, but nothing physically impressive. You know, right. he's like five. I think he's five six, five seven. Just he, an average. Like he could blend in anywhere. Right. You know, which I found uh, as a whole, the most dangerous people in the world are like that. Totally. You have no idea what they're capable of, and and they're usually very disarming and. Um, this guy was perfect that way. Yeah. So he would, I would train with his students and um, I was like, 
I was amazed. I was like, these kids have no idea what they're getting. Like they have no idea how valuable this is. I said, you know, he is, he is making them so efficient with the tool of violence right away. And you can't get this because, you know, most combat sports and martial arts, nothing against them, but they're designed to gamify violence. They're designed for a competition right. for the most part. And even the stuff that says it's, you know, for self-defense, it's usually a very indirect path to to getting a result mm -hmm. right away um this guy no there, there are no filters anything he just this is how you do and it and i imagine when you're watching ufc you probably and you do this sometimes in your instagram when you like find like a what could be like a deadly kick or somebody that just like knocks somebody out with their foot or like this crazy like jab to the liver or whatever right and you like pull those clips and break it down like why that yeah why, why it works yeah 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 it's it's it's, it's this weird thing it's like um sometimes when people hear me they think somehow it's like either or one's better than the other and it's not it at all it's the right tool for the right situation so right. some of my best people i've ever trained have been highly trained combat sport athletes they're great but when the last time i looked at the rules on the ufc there were 31 rules 27 of them were prohibiting direct injury to the human body, which is absolutely legit. Mm -hmm. Well, it's legit because yeah, you don't want, this isn't like Sparta. Oh. <laughs> no, you're not, you're not trying to maim, cripple or kill. Right. I mean, you're trying to better your opponent. You got agreed upon rules mm -hmm. and, and you know, when you're going to fight, you have weight classes, you have all those things. So that makes sense. The gamifying yeah. violence. Well, it'd be very, it's actually very uh, jarring when it, well, I'll give you a perfect example when like like the ufc we've had it happen a couple of times probably the most famous one was when um chris weidman and uh, uh spider uh i can't think of his name right now uh the brazilian fighter came out and he went to kick chris and his his foot uh, his his shin just shattered oh i saw it, it. i out. know exactly what you're talking yeah, about i watched um, that and it was disgusting yeah exactly oh, perfect okay so so you had a crowd because i was actually at that fight i was i was there at the arena and you had this crazy guy, everybody's screaming, they're loving the fact that these guys are going at each other. As soon as that happens, nobody's cheering. Everybody went, oh, because they saw, they did, understood. Did you hear it? Yeah, it's oh, a huge crack. Fuck. It was a huge crack and it went down. Isn't that a hard bone to break too? It is and it isn't, okay. meaning it's just how you how you do it. And it's been happening more and more. It happened to Connor. It happened to yeah, uh, oh my God. it happened to Chris Weidman. It happened to Chris Weidman a couple of fights after. Um and clearly he didn't mean to no. do it. Right? Well, that's just it. Like in the same thing, when you see people roll up and like accidentally poke somebody in the eye or do something like that, those are accidents, but they also end the competition. Right. And so my my uh my thought on that and the thing that I share with people, I go you know violence starts where competition ends so where they would stop the competition is actually where the violence is starting on the street you know it's mm -hmm. where somebody gets a result on somebody somebody gets a an injury and the way we define injury is either shutting down a sensory system or breaking structure of the human body um, one of those two things that takes the brain out of the equation meaning no matter how tough i am no matter how resilient i am i am having to react to the trauma mm -hmm. my brain can't stop me and we've all experienced it if you touch a hot surface, your hand automatically comes off before your brain understands that you've been burned because there's a, a, a safety valve in there with the afferent and afferent nervous system where you touch the hot surface, the, uh, the um, information starts to go up towards your brain, but it's such a high amplitude that another, um, another impulse goes right back down 
to that area. It's just pull it away. To recoil. So it's like your yeah. reflexes and are just. Then you look and you go, oh, I burnt my finger. Because if not, if you had to wait for the brain to activate, it would really damage the finger. You know, it's to protect yourself. It would burn wow. even more. Same thing if you step like on a tack and your, your foot comes up. You know, that's where, uh, that that's where, you know, uh, those are the autonomic um, uh, system kicking yeah. in. Yeah, that, that don't require thought. I love that part of your book too, because some other things that you said in the book were that you can't train like specific examples or you don't train certain like pressure points because then people will try to memorize that. And like you said, that's just not how the way, that's not the way things go down. Like right. there's a violent attack. You can't train. I think the, the um, example you used is like someone's going to the ATM and they hit, approach you on your left side and it just yeah. doesn't go down like that. And so the the key thing that stuck out to me is that you have to take their brain out of the equation. Yes. And so that that's just how you do it. Like as long as you take that out, they can't respond or you hit something where there's like a reflex that has to be involved. Yeah. Um, but that just kind of buys you more time until you can like shut their brain off. Right. Yeah. And, and that's exactly your goal is to just to stack your injuries on somebody until they're non-functional and we define non-functional as either they are uh, unconscious, they're dead or they're broken in such a way that you feel you can turn your back on them. They, you know, they can't manipulate a tool. They can't grab a gun. They can't do anything and you can get into your next threat or get out of there. So you're not training people. And like, that's kind of what you want everyone to understand. You're not training people on how to be violent. You're training them how to be violent in self-defense when there's not any other option. Yeah. Well, what most people misunderstand is the term self-defense. So there's no such thing as self-defense training. Mm -hmm. Self-defense, it, it's all violence. So it's all the using violence. It's after the after the fact, after the incident happens, the uh, law enforcement community will look at, uh, you know, the legal community will look at your act of violence. And if it's justified, they will deem it self-defense. Right. If it's not justified, then you have to deal with the legal system. Um, and, and so it's a misnomer to think people get trained in self-defense. It's, mm -hmm. it's really how you use the tool of violence. Mm -hmm. It's putting it in the right parameter. That's the uh, thing. And that's, that's where I really, that's really become since nine 11, since, uh, since nine 11, my real focus has been on training civilians. I, I still do my military and law enforcement, but with my civilians, what's really interesting is teaching them the difference between all the things they have to respond to. And what they don't have to respond to because oftentimes what they think they have to respond to they don't it's unpleasant situations where you have choice you know and um for me that's what gets most people in trouble like road rage road i rage. have Perfect. a girlfriend who <laughs> we're, we're a little spicy mamas from texas sometimes like if yeah. someone ruffles our feathers we let them know but yeah. when she scares me when she does that because you know this too i've been involved in an in assault in a vehicle yeah. and she scares because you don't ever know what the other person is going through and like i've told her every time she does it she doesn't she's gotten a lot better but i'm like you can't do that with me in the car and i don't want you to do it ever because i care about you i worry about you um but yeah, you don't ever know what the person, the other person's going through. And that part of your book, when you were talking about, um, how your son was in the backseat, do you mind using that? Oh as yeah, example? yeah, absolutely. Even though I want, everyone has to download the, the audiobook. Um, but there's the one example that you used in there when your son's holding black belt magazine and then what happened? Yeah. So, um, I think I'll front load it with another story sure. to give the juxtaposition. So. Yeah. I'm going to talk first about the last time I ever chose to use violence. I was 27 years old. Um, I had just got back from South America. We'd been doing some counter narcotics work down there. I was in doing it with an Intel group, but we were doing other things. So I was feeling full of myself. I got back to San Diego and you kind of let your guard down. 
you know so i'm in a part of san diego it's 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 the height of traffic and we're inching you know back and forth back and forth um my buddies i got two buddies of mine i had a jeep cj7 back then and i had a buddy who was looking out the back and he saw this guy behind us and the guy was just irate he for sure thought somehow in this inching traffic that i had cut him off and i got in front of him and we could tell he was just getting really agitated and we thought it was funny and so my friends are like waving at him and stuff and then <laughs> the thing that set him over the edge was i caught him in the rear view mirror and i just blew a couple kisses to him uh, you know because i thought it was funny. and we're laughing we're thinking it's so funny well this guy spends the next 10 minutes inching in front of our car and all of a sudden you know we're going and we're not going fast you know we're going super slow and all of a sudden he, he hits the brakes and he gets out and i'm like yes you know and so i'm looking at my buddies like oh this is gonna be fun and i get out and i take two steps out in front of the car so i'm it's all cars around me you know we're in we're in traffic and this guy gets out and just as i take my second step where i realize i'm beyond i'm literally in this funnel my my friend in the back of the car yells gun Oh, shit. And I go, oh. and then right then it hit me. I go, you idiot. You're in a fatal funnel. There's no place you can go. You got to charge this guy. It's the only thing, you know, and you're, you know, you know, there's a good chance you're probably going to get shot. You totally. Know? And so I'm charging this guy. Well, it wasn't a gun. It was uh, back then they used to have this thing called the, um, uh, it was a steering lock you know, on steering, oh, steering yeah, wheel yeah. lock, you know, yeah. called the club. It was called the club. Yeah. So that's what he had. And so he's there. And well, I was, he was going to hit you over the head with he it. He was going to so. hit. But, but for me, for me at that point with my, with the training that I'd had, I was like, oh, thank God. You know, I was like, oh, this is even better, you know, because I knew where I could tell the arc and angle I was at. He was trying, he, he wasn't skilled. He had it above his head like this and he was coming in. And I, oh, Jesus this is going to be great. Christ. So as he comes in, I come in under, I hit, I hit his arm. I strike it. I pull him down off, off balance. I, I hit him on the side of the uh, side of the neck, grab his hair. I throw him on the back of his car and I'm just about to punch him. I'm just about to just unload on him. And that's when it happens. There's a little girl in the back of the car. She's probably about four years old. You know, I have twin daughters now. Oh, no. She's crying and she's pressing her face up oh, against the rear windshield. God. And she's going, please don't hurt daddy. <gasps> and it just, I couldn't believe this idiot did this. You exactly. Know? I was I, like the fact that he got yeah, out of his car. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the same thing as a tire iron. Oh yeah. And I was so mad at myself for oh, what I did because I put myself, God. I put my friends in jeopardy because we egged this on. We made this happen, you know, and, and then I did what I did and, I, and had it been a gun, it would have been, you know, not only me, but anybody around me could have been shot if this guy was a maniac. Yeah. There were so many things that I didn't, because I was young, aggressive, and I had this weird idea that I could get away with this. Mm -hmm. So that was that, you know, that really taught me a lesson. So fast forward to what you're talking about. Years later, um, I'm training in San Diego. I have a seminar in San Diego. My son lives in Del Mar. Uh, I'd been divorced and he was living with his mom up in Del Mar. I was picking him up for the weekend. He was going to go hang out with my brother, do some really fun sailing stuff. And then we we're all going to go out to eat that night. Mm -hmm. But I had to go train the seminar. And so I pick him up and it lives, you know, Del Mar is kind of hilly. And so we come up and this guy comes flying down the hill. Now there's nobody out. Now literally we're the only two cars. And as he's flying down, I say, okay, he's standing to that side. And I kind of pull out and I just go in the other lane. I don't cut him off. I don't do anything, but he gets irate. He like out the back, flips me off, does the whole thing. Connor goes, wow, dad, that guy's really irate. And I go, yeah, you know, I guess he's probably having a bad day. So I get down. Of course, there's a red light and I 
pull up. So he was just going. That's my favorite. Yeah. When people are like flying and like, and then when you you wind up oh, yeah. right next to him in a red light. You're like, oh, if you feel cool, you idiot. Oh yeah. And, and my my son's <laughs> sitting right here. I'm on driver's side, and this guy just starts going off on me, like you know, running. And I just got my one of my first tattoos, and you can see just a little outline of it. And he starts going. He's really trying to get to me. He's ah, you your tattoo. You think you're so tough? You muscle head. I'll kick your ass. Blah 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 blah. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, okay, let it go, let it go. And my son's like confused. My son's looking, and he doesn't care. There's a little kid there, you know. So I know this this guy is like not you know, all triggered. There. Well, plus, like, can we just for people who like cannot see what you look like? Can you describe your stature? Yeah. <laughs> like what? I'm like I'm like, I'm, like, I'm six six one and a half. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm two hundred thirty five pounds. Um, yeah, I do. Even you know, like I'm not I'm not in the shape I was back then. Uh, but I still keep myself in decent shape in my fifties. I 50s. just wonder sometimes if guys just want a a good old fashioned ass kicking to like take their own aggression. Now I don't understand why any, cause I feel like bigger guys get picked on. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. You have like my whole demeanor is I want to become like, like if somebody doesn't know me, I want them to think I'm this like kind of like goofy, uh, teddy bear. you know, teddy bear type thing. And, and just a, just a big old neat head, you know, like that, that to me is my, 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 you know, if, if somebody starts joking with me back, I know I got them. You know, I know like, okay, they're going to leave their defenses down. So if I need my information, I want it to be a complete surprise on somebody. Yeah. And, but for this guy, okay. you know, it's going back and forth and it's getting bad. He's, he's saying a lot of stuff and I'm just kind of letting it slide. And my son's sitting there. And going back and forth. So the guy takes off. He's getting nothing from me because I'm giving him nothing. And, and he how just, old is your son? Like, my son is approximately, I think Connor was eight, seven, eight years old. And for perspective, when you're that age, you think your dad is like oh, a superhero. Yeah. So he was probably like, Big time. dad, what? And that's exactly what he said to me. He goes, dad, he goes, you could easily be, and he's just such an idiot. Why didn't you, why did you take that? Why didn't you go out? And so I told him, I said, Hey, listen, I said, you're right. I said, physically, I probably could have done that. I said, but what if something happened? Maybe, maybe I hit him and he hits his head on the floor on, on the ground. And I said, no, you know, maybe I killed him. I really hurt him. Mm -hmm. So now I'm facing, you know, I, I could be taken away by the cops. I said, what are you going to do? Well, you know, or worse, what if something happens to me? You know, what if I get killed or something? And I'm your dad and everything. I said, you know, over what? I said, there was nothing for me to respond to during that time. He goes, but dad, dad, you easily could have done that. I said, I understand what you're saying. I said, but you gotta, you know, I had to think it out. I said, I have more responsibilities with you. And I said, and honestly, that guy was having some sort of a bad day. Mm -hmm. And my son still wasn't buying it. And he goes, but dad, you're this guy. And he holds up the magazine that he has because that was the month that I'd been putting on. It was one of my, my cover covers for black belt magazine and and i was you know the, the self-defense instructor of the year the whole thing and then it's just this picture they have of me holding a knife up and everything well like because, the juxtaposition you know? of that situation that your son's in the backseat holding you on the cover of black belt magazine and there's a guy trying to pick a fight yeah with the cover oh star yeah of it, black belt magazine. and we still laugh he's 27 now and we still laugh about you know about that and uh that probably sets such a good example for him it's like you know what is the, like spider-man it's like with great power comes great responsibility yeah. i mean you could literally snap that guy's neck yeah. and knowing that you can do that and then you know, choosing not to like, that's a big statement. For in in the context that I put people in is this, it's like, uh, I treat everybody. I don't know. Like they're six seconds away from shooting spree. And what I not, and the only reason I'm, what I, what I'm saying that not that I'm paranoid is that when you don't know somebody, you have no idea what they're capable of or what right. they're up to. And so until I know what's going on, I'm going to be very consolatory. I'm going to be very nice because I'm assessing the situation. Right. And, also, a lot of people like your girlfriend that you're talking about. I also talk to everybody, all my all my um, clients, about the idea of the three day rule. Meaning, 
whatever incident you think you have to respond to right now, are you going to tell yourself three days later, if you find yourself in a jail cell or, you know, six feet under, are you going to tell yourself that you had no choice? You had to respond to that. And most of those incidents will mean nothing to you in a couple of days. That's right. But you have to pre-think that. And so the way I train people, you know, the training that we were talking about, the reason I have them do the physical training first is because they have to understand what they would have to do in another human to survive a violent situation. Meaning if they're facing imminent grievous bodily harm, meaning they're devoid of choice, here's the only tool that's going to get you out of this. And so that's why I first immerse them in the physical part of the training and we, you know, we, we do a slow methodical way of laying that foundation, but it's very intense for people because they understand exactly what they're doing to the human body and what would be the result if they were successful. What's interesting is once they understand the worst case scenario, then they're way more open to changing their behavior because that's my real goal with my clients. My, it's not to turn them into super ninjas or anything like that. You know, I mean, my military and law enforcement guys, when I have a lot of time to train with them, yeah, I, I train them for competency. For my my civilians, I train them for competency for sure. But really what most of them need is they need to take a look at their lives and say, okay, where am I taking unnecessary chances in my life? I talk about the idea of, I meet a lot of people and they're living a life where like every night they go to bed and they're putting their head on a railroad track. And, you know, they get up the next morning, oh, great, train didn't come, no big deal. And my whole thing is, well, the train comes when you least expect it. So why don't we just not put our head on the railroad track and do something else? So, and I, you talk about that in your book too. And <laughs> when I was like listening to it, cause I have this crazy alarm system now because my house was broken into in right. like 2000 and 2013 or something, 14. And a few things, I didn't have a glass break, a shatter break system. Um, and then also Xena, yeah. my 130 pound mastiff that yeah. you that you met She's she the loves best. you she wasn't home she was at the crossfit gym with me and so right. that's when the person broke in but it's like you listening to your book made me realize i'm like why well, i don't turn my alarm on all the time yeah and i'm like why don't i do that i literally have to press one button and so now i'm doing it like multiple times a day yeah. if i'm like coming in out of the house or if i go to sleep like sometimes i forget last night i got out of bed walked over and said it and it's just a good practice to have like like you said why wouldn't you i'm not going to lay yeah. my head down on a railroad track if i have all the tools to make you know my life a little easier yeah my goal with clients is not to uh is just to make them a hard target me to because predators don't want a competition they don't want to they don't want a challenge they will look at a situation and they'll say man it's too much work and that's what I want. I want somebody who's been trained by me for predator to look at you and say, yeah, they're aware, they're situation aware. Oh, they got a dog. Oh, they got an alarm system. It's not worth it. That's like me. My head's always on a swivel yeah. <laughs> wherever I go. But also you talk about that, like a dog is a huge deterrent yes. for like home break-ins, you think, or just well, being out in public? I'll and tell you, I'll tell you a local, a local situation here. Um, so there was a judge that lived over in Henderson in a three gate community, a really nice one in Anthem. Mm -hmm got broken into he and his wife were he was beaten severely his wife was beaten severely they thought in his um they thought he had a bunch of cash and uh jewelry in this uh uh safe that they had and it wasn't true they didn't have the, actually they oh. had it off-site in a vault area that they pay for um but they're, they're beaten within to uh you know an inch of their lives it was horror horrible wow but what was interesting was when metro tracked down this group and got them when they got to their apartment, they saw that neighborhood. They had maps of all the neighborhoods they hit, but they saw that particular neighborhood. 
And every house in that neighborhood that was circled had a dog. And those were the ones they avoided. Wow. And not attack dogs, not any, just a dog. It could be, it could be literally be a, you know, a little, uh, you know, Pomeranian that just won't shut up. Um, it, it's just dogs they can't control. And right, so it's they, just it's one like of those they, sen- they hear things like yeah. that's what Xena scares the crap. I, mean, I don't mind it because, right. you know, I live by myself, but that's the scariest thing is that like, she'll just start barking in the middle of the night and it's yeah. cause she heard something. So I don't ever get her in trouble when she does that, but I'm, I'm assuming that's why it's like yeah. they, their hearing systems are so much, you know, more sensitive than humans. And they, and they inherently know when somebody's supposed to be there and they're not supposed to be there. And totally. the brilliant thing about Mastiffs that I found, the reason I love Mastiffs is because they're so smart. They've been bred to be uh, guard dogs and protectors for, for so long. Yeah. Yeah. But they're like, all you have to do is introduce them to say, if you've got a guy that works on your garden or you got a guy that's a pool guy or something, you don't have to introduce them once. That's right. And then the dog knows. Mm-hmm. And, and they're really, they're really intelligent. So, you know, the reason I like the Mastiff that way is because I know if my Mastiff's barking, something's up. Yeah. You know, it's not some rando that, you know, I'm, you know, geez, it's just the, the, the male guy or something, you know? Um, but I tell people all the time, I, it's not that I'm telling you you have to have a dog, whether you want to have a dog or not. You're asking me what is something that is a universal, um, you know, barrier that you can have that's that's really easy, and that's having a dog. You know? So, top three things for like home protection, you would say, obviously, an alarm system, yeah, a dog. Yeah. Is there anything else? Really, it's it's that, and um, if you have, if you choose to have a firearm, um, that you have it next to you. You, you have it available to you and that you've trained. The the dangerous thing that I see is a lot of people think a firearm, they buy it, uh, they, they might even get their CCW, but they never train with it. Right. And that's a that's a recipe for disaster, you know, you know for that, um, because it's a, it's a tool that requires responsibility. It would be like buying a, um, a really nice car and not knowing how to drive properly. Yeah. You know, like, like you have to put time into it. If, if a firearm is not for you, then that's great. There are other things you can, you can do. Um, but it's really that proactiveness that, that we're talking about. Just the basics, you know, make it difficult for somebody to get into your house, make it difficult for somebody to get into your, um, your, your cars and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's just there. So your training programs that you, what's the number one reason why people come to you and you, is it like after the fact that like there's been some incident and then they come to you? Cause like, you're talking about being proactive. I imagine that normally it's like after something happens. Well, that's what's so great about being able to do a podcast like this or something. So I'm hoping the majority of people that are listening to this have not had violence enter their life. If you don't know who I am, it's probably a good thing. Uh, 70% of my client base still comes to me after the fact something's happened in their life, either to them personally or something's happened to somebody they love and or a friend. And they realize, oh my God, I don't have anything in the toolbox for this. I never thought it could happen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't undo any of that stuff. What I can do is give them principles and methods that will minimize the chance of it ever happening to them again. Um, but what's so great is when I get somebody who hasn't had anything happen yet, and then I can open them up to this material and they can make necessary changes that will really minimize the chance of violence ever coming in their life. And the thing that sticks out to me, because I just got done listening to your book, what I liked about it and what was made it such an easy, like listen, or I'm sure read is that you have real life scenarios from people who are in your classes. Those are the things that I keep going back to while you're sitting here talking. And the girl that listened to your, one of your lectures or seminars on the cruise ship. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Yeah, she's great. She was like, she was like a real life, uh, you know, if you saw the movie legally blonde, 
That was her. She was she's literally Elwood. Elwood. She was, and she's a great kid. And I knew her dad. Uh, I used to. I used. I, I still do. I do speaking engagements for um, YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Their yep. their corporate groups. And I knew her dad over the years. And this particular cruise, we were on a Baltic cruise. Uh, it's beautiful. It was this amazing cruise. And one of the th- events they wanted me to host was a lot of the. It was a family cruise, and a lot of the um, kids were going off to college. And so I did a father-daughter um, event where the fathers came and they didn't work with their daughters, but they all kind of knew each other. Because I like women to work with unfamiliar body types. Right. It, it's really important. Uh, unfamiliar male body types. Plus, I feel like if it was your dad, you'd be like giggling or like yeah. cur- cur- acting like you're karate, karate chop. But, yeah. But when, when we circulated the dads around and stuff, it worked. Mm-hmm. You know? And so you went through it. And listen, she did the training. She didn't. She wasn't a jerk or anything. But I could tell, you know, she did not necessarily want to be there a lot of the girls really didn't want to be there mm-hmm. um because it's that mindset you're like this is never gonna happen yeah. to me you know and- exactly and, and and i and i get that um so we we do the training i don't think anything of it go on the rest of the cruise it was fantastic I had a great time two years later two and a half years later she shows up in new york at one of my training and she has three of her sisters in tow wow and she goes hey she said um she said um I don't know if you remember me. Of course I remember you. How you doing? And she goes, I go, how's your dad doing? Oh, he's doing great. I go, oh, that's cool. And I'm about to, she goes, you didn't hear. And I go, no, what? And she says, oh, she goes, I was attacked at school. And she went to school. She went and um, it, it was, it was, uh, well, I don't want to say where, where it was, but anyways, she was, she was at a, a school uh, in the, in the Northwest. Um, and she had a, uh, her dorm room was on the bottom floor mm-hmm. and she had a roommate and they would leave their windows open and, you know, kind of easy access, you know, get in. It was, it was literally easy to open a window and get inside if, if you had to. A guy was watching her place for three weeks. This is literally every woman's worst nightmare, which is why you have to listen or buy this book that Tim has, but keep going. Well, her roommate, her roommate had a boyfriend and she'd stay like about three or four nights at the boyfriend's uh, uh, apartment or a dorm room. And this guy got the, he got it down. That's what most of these guys do. They track you for a while and they know exactly. They want to see what your routines are and everything. And she made it very easy for this guy to come in. Now she had one of those beds. She, they each had it where their desk was underneath the bed. It was kind of a higher bed, you know, like a dorm room bed. Um, you know, your, your, your desk underneath and then you kind of climb up and you're on a, like, it's almost like you're on the second bunk. Good old dorm room. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and and she had a hardwood, uh, they had a hardwood floor and she wakes up in the middle of the night. And this guy's 230 pounds and he's on top of her. Like literally just wakes up and there he is. And she said it was like, she said it was like you were in my ear. She said the first thing I knew was he's too far away. I have to wait. And you were in her ear from the cruise ship class that she didn't want to be at. Which she didn't want to be. And she hadn't trained since. Okay. And that's the idea of training people in principles and everything rather than techniques, you know? Because it doesn't leave you. Yeah, it doesn't leave you. You understand. And so... I, I, one of the scenarios I put people in like that is, is it is, I guess you call it the rape scenario, but she knew, okay, yes, he has me pinned, but in order for him to do anything, he's going to have to move his hands and he's going to have to adjust and, and he's going to have to, you know, like get down. his pants. Yeah. And, and bring himself, oh bring himself closer. And that's what he did as he went to, to take the, the, um, the, uh, uh, blankets off of her. He pulls the blankets down. He puts his head down. 
that's when she and she latched onto him right, right like we showed her she latched on really hard onto his neck and she took her thumb and she put it right in the guy's eye and she knew and the reason she held on because you know she goes i remember you telling us that they're going to violently you know go away from being hit in the eye and got to hold on you can't got to hold on for life you know because you wanted to get that injury so sure enough this guy jerks up and trying to pull away from her pulls her off the bed she's still holding on to him now he falls with his back going down first as she goes, her 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 thumb comes off uh, the eye. She didn't necessarily mean to do this, but then her forearm is there. And when she hit the floor, her forearm went right into his throat because with all of her weight. Because her whole body weight, right. Yeah. Is, oh, my God. And so he hits the ground. Her she, her body weight plus her forearm goes right into his throat. She feels, she, she goes, I heard the, the crunch in the exhale. When, and I could feel him release me. And she got up running and screaming down down the thing. When by the time they come back, the guy had asphyxiated and died. She was totally she was totally fine from it. Um, but she was kicking herself. She was kicking herself. She goes, you know what? I didn't look. She goes, I remembered all that, but I didn't remember the idea of like you know awake, awareness, making yourself safe. There's so many things I could have done to make that impossible for this guy to make be have it that easy. So that was it. And then she wanted to make damn sure that her sisters had all that information when they came in. That's what, because your first thing that you want to say is like, God, she's so lucky. But like, there was, you know, obviously her forearm, that was lucky. But like yeah. the eye jab that made him rear back, that wasn't luck. Yeah. That was just the, you know, minimal training that she'd had with you. Yeah. And she did real damage. She understood to do real damage. No, it's funny because Mike Murphy was this, uh, was the coroner here in Vegas. And he's the guy they based originally, uh, you know, CSI off of. And oh, he's wow. really, I didn't so, know that. So my wife hooked me up, you know, Sasha, mm-hmm. Sasha hooked me up with a meeting with him when I was putting the book together. And he was showing me all this different data. And um, and he said, Tim, he goes, look, he goes, I solved this girl's murder. He goes, I found uh, I found DNA underneath her fingernails of the guy. And we were able to find her. And I go, oh, wow, that's amazing. He goes, yeah, yeah, I solved her murder. He goes, you want to know what I'm disappointed about? And I go, what? He goes, look where she scratched him. And he showed, he scratched all in the eyes right there. And he goes, she could have got to the eyes, but nobody ever taught her how to do that. He goes, I hope you're teaching people how to injure. He goes, the people that talk to the cops and saw and, and, and survive are the people that injure these predators. And he said, all I can do is solve their murders. And, and th- that just really stuck with me. So when I teach something, and sometimes it might sound like, wow, you're being really specific. You're being really graphic about how you do X, Y, or Z. And I'm really uncomfortable with that information. Well, your brain has to go there. Yeah. You know, I keep thinking of that girl, you know, and then, then joy, um, Joey, uh, the, the girl I talk about at the very beginning of my book and, uh, survive the unthinkable. She was this amazing ranger. That's the wildlife. Yeah. 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 Amazing woman. Just great. Oh, you knew and, her. And she, no, I, I know I, I interviewed her uh, bosses and oh. stuff like that, but they're just telling me about this amazing woman, you know, how she was. She just, she's the first one out there. She's, you know, just just very independent. And when you looked at her cabin, this girl fought like a wild, like like, like just just a, a honey badger. You know, she Damn. did everything she could, but she didn't know how to specifically injure this guy. You know, mm-hmm. to the point to where he threw her in a car, he tied her up. She still got away from him there, and she ran into the woods. And that's when he tracked her down because she had been bound, and that's when he killed her. And so my whole thing was, listen, that girl had every instinct to live she just didn't have the right information yeah you know and and it was there and so so i think of these people they're my avatars when i'm training new people you know and that's that's the situation because statistically whenever i train a group 
I know that one person in the class statistically is going to need the information and I never know who it is. Right. And it's usually always the most unlikely people. And so that's why I make sure that, hey, you know, we're, we're taking our time. We're learning exactly what to do. And I give them a lot of data to back it up because that's what I want. I want if something happens to you, the your brain is going to look for the best information it has. Look, and I want our stuff to pop up. I want to be like that girl said. It's like you were in my ear. You know, we had another woman who got attacked at a Home Depot. And uh, oh, she corrected me uh, recently. She goes, I wasn't Home Depot, it was Lowe's. And I oh, said, yeah. okay, she's so funny. She's great. <laughs> I know, um, you talking about that's one in your book too. But that was, that was the, the same second thing. time that she'd been attacked, The right? second time, yeah. And this was a woman who I didn't even think she was going to get through training because it was bringing back so much trauma from her first assault. Yeah. So she's at Lowe's. She bought flats of flowers and she has a therapy dog who's a German shepherd who also is a, you know, a protection dog. But she had put her dog into the kennel and look, I'm up, and she's loading the flats and she hears from behind her. She hears this guy say, may I help you? And she said, all the hairs on her neck went up. She goes, it's happening again. We and, know. and just as she was thinking that he scoops her up, you know, he, he grabs her. Now she had concealed carry, but she said it was like you guys were in our our ear you know she was talking about you know all of us me and my other instructors she said i knew i couldn't get to my gun from this position and i remember you guys saying if it's not in your hand it's not your weapon you know it's not your, your thing and now her dog's locked up yep. in the kennel oh and, she, and she's thinking and the dog's going crazy and she's thinking but this arm was free you know that she had she had one arm free and she realized instead of trying to get away from the guy she knew she'd twist into him because you know the guy guy was at, actually pulling her in and she was able to use her elbow she struck the side of the neck as hard as she could the side of the neck has a vein an artery and two nerves it's the vagus the vagus nerve yeah. and the phrenic nerve and then you have uh jugular and the carotid when you interrupt blood flow and nerve flow it's like a reset for your uh for your body you know and, and so it because it, it you have an increase in blood pressure and the body says oh something's wrong let's dump all the blood from the brain and that's when people pass out or it's if you hit hard it can also be a concussion you know on either side so she does that and the guy responds and he starts to do a vasal vagal where he starts to kind of like faint as he's going down she sees the top of his knee and this little lady just jumps on that knee and flamingoed his knee Ooh. you know and got him he hits the ground and he's she knew he was over at that point she didn't even pull her gun out um security comes and the cops come when the cops came they said to her they go you had every right to pull your gun out and shoot this guy. You know, I mean, he literally had the panel van. He had the lime. He had the bound. All the, he was going to take yeah, her to a secondary that, like, place. They found his his van oh, yeah. and it was like the AC was on. Like the, it was Everything. running. Like he was ready every, to yeah. abduct her. That's what he's going to He's going to take her right and throw her in the van. And she'd be gone to the secondary crime scene. Um, and they said, why didn't you shoot him? And she goes, well, I could see that he was no longer a threat. You know, like, like, and that's the, the cool part about the way we train people is all my civilians, you know, I've had two civilians that unfortunately went to lethal, but they were okay with it. Meaning the majority of, of civilians, the next strike that would have probably been lethal, they recognize non-functional. Right. And so they stop. So what I'm trying to tell people is this type of training doesn't turn you into some, it doesn't violate your moral some code. Murderer or killer. No, no, you're, yeah. you're in control of it. And you know, from the feedback loop, what works and what doesn't work. And if you have to put more into somebody, um, but I'm very realistic with people. And I think probably one of the coolest things I got recently 
was I got a, a very capable guy that I trained years ago. He's former military, just, you know, former contractor. He's done a lot of stuff. He was going to pick his wife up uh, at Dallas uh, Fort Worth Airport. And he's in, uh, I think he lives in Wembley. And he uh, was going, just went to like, I think a, a KOA or something. Got some beef jerky and, and some peanuts and stuff. He's coming out and the guy's mad dogging me in his car. And he knows what's wrong with this dude. And so then he gets in his car and he goes, dude, I'm just going to ignore it. He gets in the car. He starts driving away. And as he's, just as he's about to drive away, the guy starts flipping him off and like mad dying, really coming at him. And he goes, Tim, and he literally sends me this video and he goes, Tim, he goes, I got to thank you. He goes, you had sent out a video about three weeks before about a hockey coach, a female hockey coach, a, 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 a guy who taught the female team beloved by the community was at a bar. A guy was a drunk and he was belligerent and got into it. And the hockey dad had resisted, resisted, resisted. And then right as the guy was leaving, he had words with them. They went outside, got into a pushing match. And this guy pushes the hockey coach. He falls down these stairs and he's dead. So now you got two guys that one, you've got, you know, a family that's lost a dad yep. for that. Now you got another family whose dad is doing time for, for manslaughter over nothing. Right. You, you know, when you cross the physical plane, you put your hands on somebody, you have no idea where it's going to end up. Right. And, and that's unintended consequences. So when I get feedback like that from somebody who said, hey, your content made me stop. Right. And like think. you don't want to accidentally kill somebody. Yeah, but nothing. like if you are in a position where you need to, yeah. like it's not an you want to make sure it's not an accident. Yeah. And that's the idea. It really comes down to, you know, people say, well, when do you know? Like I talk about, you know, the fancy terms for it is antisocial aggression. That's usually all the things you can. They're unpleasant, but you can avoid. You can you can make a choice to leave. And then there's asocial violence. And that's imminent, you know, grievous Danger. bodily harm. Right. The asocial violence is what you have to respond to. You know, where, where, where violence is the only tool that's going to work. The antisocial aggression is where a lot of people get themselves in trouble. It can turn into violence like it did with the, the hockey coach and the other guy. Um, what I like to know is, is uh, you know, people will contact me after training and they'll give me a story and they'll say, hey, Tim, the old me, this happened. The old me would have done this. I really thought about it and I was able to get myself out of there and you know, it was so no big deal. it's almost like anger management, but what is that? It's like anger management in reverse because you're showing people like the, like um, the probability that you could really do danger to somebody, right? You could. It is anger. It, sometimes it is anger management. A lot of times it is just very, it's a justified response to a really unpleasant person mm. who is, who's really being a jerk and probably deservedly so should be, you know, in the, you know, all things being equal, it'd be great to give him a, you know, a beating and, and hopefully change his behavior. But the risks of that are huge for you. You got, we have so much more to lose than these people, you know, and you have to really think about it. So it's disciplining yourself to be able to understand the difference between the two. And, and the more you can educate somebody to trauma with the human body and, and how it responds, it, it, it's crazy the behavioral change in people. So when you were talking about how the girl from the dorm room, how she jammed her finger in the guy's eye, I don't know why, because like everything else that you've said, like in your whole book, I was yeah. like, yeah, like that, none of that grosses me out. I don't know what it is about people's eyeballs that freaks me out. Can you explain what happens when you stick your finger in someone's eye? Does it like pop? Does it get out of socket? Like, well, just to tell you, just to tell you, yeah. I literally have had people, uh, my, my instructor and I, there's another instructor buddy of mine, 
and we we trade off on who talks about different injuries and when we get to the point where we're talking about people using the thumb and gouging the eye out mm-hmm. when as we're describing it we literally have people passed out because what happens is oftentimes what, what you'll do is you'll you'll internalize what's going on and you'll create your own vasal vagal response yeah it's like sympathy pains because we it's understand real yeah thing. we understand you know i talk about you go to the inside tear duct and that you go down to the second knuckle and you're going to feel pressure sometimes you'll feel bursting and wetness eyeball popping yes and you'll feel you'll feel in the back of the area you'll also feel these these thick nerves that are back there you know these these ligaments like and stuff like once you go all the way through you mean exactly holy and, but but the reason we talk about that megan is because I don't want to be a surprise. Totally. I want you to have you that option. Prepare people. Yeah. That's why I'm asking. Cause yeah. I feel like if that, that's the one thing that I keep hearing, like as a woman all the time, cause like if a guy's bigger than you, you got to go for their like nuts or their eyeballs. Yeah. Well, there's a fallacy out there. Like I, I, you know, there's, there's about 120 areas in the human body that can get a response. Like we're talking about, mm-hmm. you don't have to know all of them, but the, the misnomer is like, I, I've heard ridiculous stuff. I've heard guys sit there and go, oh, you can't get my eye. Just close it really hard and everything. And it's like they're imagining, they're imagining this like, like thing where everybody knows what's going on. Yeah. You know, uh, I guess what I can, you know, compare it to is like when you're not prepared for something, right? Like people will say, oh, you know, if you hit me here, I wouldn't do that. Well, what you do is you wait till they're in a relaxed state when they're not ready. And guys do it all the time. They'll, they'll take the back of their hands and they'll slap each other in the groin and you'll see a guy just go, you know, like when they're not ready for <laughs> guys it. Guys are so weird. And it's, I know, I know we're, we're crazy, <laughs> but it's the same thing. Like your eye, you're not going to attack the, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm going to come for your eye. And you're like, no, Close it's, it it's really going to be, tight. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And I've got numerous, one thing that I do in my, in my, um, my trainings is I share numerous videos of these areas of the human body, you know, when it happens, you know, real violence. And oh uh, it changes everybody's perspective on things when they see that. Like you show photos of people who have been. I photos, I show some real video of people like, you know, there have been videos captured of people getting poked. Out. A lot of times like it happens in basketball all the time. Guys will be going for the ball and their finger will go right in the guy's eye and stuff. And um, yeah, it's really, that's why you see a lot of the guys that wear the face masks and everything. Yeah. It's because something's happened to them. So when's it like, how can people get into your training courses? Like how often are you doing them these days? And I usually do them every, every, uh, pro- probably like every other month I'm doing some sort of a live training. Uh, best way though to start is probably just go to, go to my website, go to timlarkin.com. And if you sign up there, we've got a, we've got a free guide that gives you 11 different modules. You know, if, the, if you like what you heard in this and you want to expand upon it, it's a nice free way for you to get more information and take a look and see, because I'm, I don't always know if I'm the right person. You know, I want to make sure that if you if you seek me out for training, that my approach is an approach you're comfortable with. You know, and so I like to try to give people as much information as possible ahead of time. Being that your approach is different, and how, like what? Well, because I talk about violence. I right. talk about you know, it's not about competition. There's no, there's no payoff other than survival. Right. You know, like when you yeah. do jujitsu or something, you can better your opponent. You can choke your friend out. You can have some fun. And, and I love combat sports. I'm a huge combat sports friend, uh, 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 you know, uh, a fan. And also I participated for years in it. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not that I don't like it. It's just like, you know, there you get a payoff. You know, you, it's the belt systems and, and um, there's camaraderie. There's all that. When you train with me, there's no music. Uh, there's no communication, really. We don't smile with each other. We don't help each other up because none of that's going to be available with you on the street when you know, you're know you facing real violence. So I put you in the right context and I make sure the information gets stored in the right part of your brain. Yeah. Or listen to your book on audio. Yeah. Okay. I also, the question box, I had people ask some stuff. So I'm going to pull this up really quick. 
why would the top of someone's foot be a target was like a, i had to kind of reword the question but well the way the way I, I if you look at the target chart that we have um the top of the foot is a very vulnerable area first of all it's got a lot of nerves the bone uh, i forgot how many bones are in the there's 27 bones in your hand and there's probably there's a lot of bones yeah foot. and the top of your foot it, it's an arch and there's a ligament that, that holds it together when you stomp the top of your foot you snap that ligament the whole foot flops and it can't operate correctly and Even it's an if excellent someone's part. In shoes like if someone's wearing oh, yeah. shoes you can still like right where the lace area is would you recommend a female doing that if we like weigh less well like you got your stilettos on right now and i've got a great story of um so the woman that ian ian fleming the guy that wrote all the james bond novels he based montepenny the secretary for for the head of the secret service uh off this woman and she was a real you know she was a real woman very wealthy woman lived in um where she lived she lived in a very nice part of london and this is like the late 80s um she got attacked and her driver opened up her door and these guys came out of the hedges these big hedges two guys um one had like a sap and he knocked out the driver the driver was like 72 he's an older driver he'd been with her family forever yeah. she was in her i believe she was in at that point i think she was 79 and just a statuesque woman even in, in her age you know just very proper and she's getting out of her car and the the guy has a knife right here and right right in front of her and she sees his foot and she takes her stilettos, which I thought was really cool. Woman that age is still wearing stilettos. <laughs> and she buried it in the top of his foot. And the guy just screamed, dropped the knife, went there, and just, you know, started going away. She then grabbed his hips and she had to pull herself up and she kneed him in the groin. Had she been taught? Yeah, she'd been taught during World War II. Wow. And this was 30 something years later. This happens to her. And she was able to do that. And when they asked her, they go, Why did you take such a risk? Why did you do that? She said, Well, she said, I saw they had no problem, you know, uh, injuring el elderly people. Look what they did to my driver. Yep. And she said, I, I knew what I could and couldn't do. I knew I could get his foot. And she said, I said, well, why not? And that's what she did. So, and what was interesting was he, he passed out in the hedges over. That's where they found him. They found him curled up in the hedges because, you know, the, the, the pain. This was little there. lady just whooped him. I mean. I, that's true though that your brain will catalog yeah. those kinds of lessons like you said if it was all the way in world war ii well, and the idea was it was a predator what i teach people to do is not to compete she didn't compete with him he was a predator that didn't feel any risk putting himself that close to her without injuring her he hadn't injured her yet and she just happened to know what to do with some information and she was able to protect herself i would never think of the foot as somewhere to attack somebody so that's super interesting for me yeah the, yeah the foot can be very effective when you do that but in what i tell people all the time is when you're kicking like people kick with the top of their foot all the time and i tell people you know you really only want to strike with any area of the foot where you can actually walk on it so you can walk on your heels you can walk on the sides of your feet and you can walk on your toes but you can't walk on the top of your feet you know and you can, because it's just not designed for that structurally right. you right. know uh, okay, so another one. I don't know if you can answer this, but um, this person was it was a, another like long winded one. But they are saying that like when someone is has a gun and they're shooting at you, like let's say someone breaks into your home, mm -hmm. why would you run at somebody instead of away from somebody that has a firearm? Or is that accurate? The only reason you'd run towards them is when you're devoid of an exit. If you have a way to leave, what, 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 we, what we tell people is if you don't have an exit, 
you're the the shitty answer to that is you have to charge the person because everything that'll change something in your favor is on there now most people um the, the when you look at gunshots it's much harder to shoot somebody that's coming at you when they're no it's still it's a horrible it's a horrible option but what they found is it's not that it's not necessarily getting shot once that's the most dangerous thing it's getting shot multiple times and so if you can close distance and, and go after somebody um you have a much better chance of survival it comes in and there's a guy there's a gangbanger there's one of the things i talk about there's a gangbanger in la real famous and uh he's at a little bodega he's cashing out rival gang member comes down no way out behind it's it's this way he's in the uh, grocery aisle this guy sees him starts to dig out a gun you know to, to shoot him. this guy doesn't have a gun he's got his groceries throws his groceries down charges the guy this guy gets the gun out and just starts unloading hits him five times this guy knocks him to the ground and beats him to death basically while he has five bullets in him it didn't hit anything specific i, I have multiple uh multiple um videos of people being shot but because it didn't hit anything that was like a timer or a switch I mean, on the body meaning a timer is something that if it, it hits you you're going to probably bleed out very rapidly a switch is something that if i hit it, it it literally everything below the area that you hit is now no, not useful anymore on your body on that if if that if you don't hit anything you know everybody talks about shot placement and and if your shot you know doesn't hit something that's vital right away you can survive it basically all of your training that like lined you up for this is it just you like have studied human anatomy so much and that's how you are you know you know and it's like hand-to-hand combat stuff and navy seal training and all of that kind of came together to give you this like certain yeah yeah like we got we got the we got a medical community that merged with us during the special operations at the place i was at and it was just where we brought in all these special uh all these sports medicine doctors who were looking at injury to the human body in another way, we meshed it with the training that we were doing and they were able to identify all the errors of the human body, give us all the medical terminology of what happens when those areas are affected. And so it's a, re- it's a target chart list that is actually really accurate. There's a lot of them that are out there that are kind of like fantasy that they have from the old you know Kung Fu days and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the area that we use is all backed up by sports uh, injury data. Wow. I mean, this has been super interesting for me. The other thing I was thinking about too when I was listening to your book is my dad, like from a young age, he's taught me some of this stuff. Like when you're talking about how your elbows, your knees are like fulcrums and there's like, he's always, you know, if you ever get attacked, you have to take it and do this. And and I'm like listening and I'm, and it's funny that we were like at dinner with my dad and I, I'm pretty sure he had no idea, you know, you guys would have just, we would have spent like another five hours at dinner or something. Oh, your dad's great, man. He (laughs) was awesome with my son. Yeah, he was. Listen, most people don't know what I do. I mean, unless they know who I am, you know, unless they they found, but my friends and everybody, unless they start talking to me about it, I'm not going to bring it up. It's not, it's not something that really, you know, is is a good dinner conversation a lot, you know? And so, uh, I, I laugh. I'll never forget when, um, we first started doing the PR for the gun range Yeah, and I am the one that got the phone call. I was reading this on like some article that somebody had written on you online that your hands are registered weapons. Yeah. I'm the one that got the phone call about that. You were on a flight to go to London or somewhere in the UK, right? And they asked you to get off of the flight. Yeah. Remind me what happened. This was years ago. Yeah. They gave me a travel ban in 2011, which is still in effect. Um, I had given an interview on the riots. I I have a long history of training in the UK. Um, Went to school there and everything. Um, 
and so I've trained as a contractor, military, I've trained their special operations forces, law enforcement, and civilians. Never had an issue. Um, they had the riots in 2011. I was interviewed by the BBC. Uh, they asked me, the last question they asked me, they said, hey, listen, you have, you've been coming here a long time. Do you have any clients that were um, part of the, you know, were in any of the riot areas? And I said, yes. And then I said, I do. And they go, oh, do you have any plans on going to the riot areas? And I said, ah, it's funny you're saying that. Yeah, a couple of them have invited, have invited me and they wanted to show me, you know, where they were and when they recognized things were going asocial and they were able to get themselves out of there and their family out of there. Mm. So left it at that. Everybody, everybody plays it straight. The Mirror, which is kind of like a National Enquirer yeah, over there. The UK. They write this thing. I think it was on page six. They write this huge, the headline says, Larkin to lead riot tour. And they said that I was going to go around when I came over and I was going to go to all the riot affected areas and I was going to promote vigilanteism. And I had had a interview with an MP four years prior and it had a round table. And everybody agreed with me at the end. I was training in her area. It was Slough and they had a huge knife crime problem. And she didn't like me coming there because I was promoting that, hey, you know, the, the, the first responders aren't going to be able to get there in time. And you're going to at least need to know something. Mm -hmm. She was very uncomfortable with that. She didn't want civilians learning how to protect themselves. She wanted the police to do it. And at the end, I mean, I had a former commissioner of, uh, of Scotland Yard. I had a military guy, I had a rabbi, I had a, a you know, very well-known personality on there. And everybody agreed with me, except her at the end. She was really mad. You know, She wasn't mad. She was keeping it together, but I could tell she was mad. Mm -hmm. I go into the green room after and you know, shake her hand and everything. And there's another woman there who's an MP, and I shake her hand. And you know, I didn't think anything of it. Well, what I didn't realize was the woman that was the other MP was Theresa May. And so Theresa May, a couple of years later, becomes the uh, the uh, Home Secretary. And as soon as she sees this article from the BBC, she sends it, or fr from uh, the Mirror, she sends it to Theresa May. She says, we cannot have this in our country and they issued a travel ban. And uh, so I go to McCarran Airport at the time and I'm catching the four o'clock flight on the Virgin, on Virgin, which I've done a million times to go to London. And I go to give my, my passport and i could tell I, well i could tell i could tell that they were uh something's going on something's going on because they're they're and i i actually knew the people behind there because i've been doing so many flights and stuff and so she's just monkeying around and i hear this mr larkin and i look behind me and you know that flight is packed i mean people are there and this guy is in a three-piece suit he all he needed was a bowler cap and an umbrella he looked like a the total <laughs> british bureaucrat he said, I'm from the UK Board of Defense Administration. He said, I'm here to present you with this letter from the Home Secretary, Theresa May. You have been issued a travel ban. You will not be boarding this flight, nor are you allowed to come to um, you know, the UK for promoting vigilanteism. It, uh, Megan, it was like the party of the Red Sea. Like everybody got out of the way. They thought I was some sort of an Irish terrorist or something, you know? <laughs> and I get that. Now, Genghis had dropped me off, my partner Genghis, who, yeah. who we both know. Yeah. And Genghis is a Kiwi. And I call him up. I go, hey, can you come back and get me? He goes, what's wrong, mate? And I, and I go, I go, I just got banned from the UK. I said, Theresa May just issued a letter. He goes, 
that's fantastic. He, <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he goes, I don't think I've never known anybody that's been banned. And he's so he excited to come get excited. me. He called me and he was like, we have to put something out about this to fight back because there was a terrible article about him and his hands are registered weapons and everyone thinks he's a murderer. And, you know, oh, it's great. <laughs> like, what is happening? I have no idea. Like yeah. any of that, of that backstory, just yeah. like the end result was like what the publicist got. Yeah, it was really funny. And my wife laughs. She goes, she goes, well, you and Snoop Dogg, you're both banned from the UK. You know, so. <laughs> things you don't know you have in common with exactly um okay tell everybody where they can find you if you have any like upcoming training seminars that are coming up that people can get involved in yeah pr uh, probably the best way like i said is uh, go to timlarkin.com uh it's the easiest one and you can just sign up for for my newsletter there um it will not only give you the free report but you'll have all the information on the offerings that we have as far as trainings and stuff i train here and i train in other parts of the country also and your your uh instagram is t larkin ft uh, it? it's uh tim larkin tft okay yeah yeah and i feel like you also post a lot of really good nuggets on yeah, there i try like to breaking down like sports yeah. injuries and that kind of thing yeah my youtube I, my youtube channel also but you'll get all that information when you, when you, when you the go website. there yeah and, and it's i put i try to put out as much i'm only going to be able to reach so many people that's why i try to put out as much content as possible for people Yep. And his books on Amazon and Audible. Yes. I'm a huge fan, obviously. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming in. This was like such an interesting conversation. Oh, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah.